0: Opening up God's Word continues to be the most important thing that happens every week for me. It's amazing to me how God speaks to us through His Word. How He says the things that He says. Um, how He leads us, whether it's in Bible study or in prayer. Um, I had a, an incredible, incredible experience this morning. and I'm not going to share it. It's not... But it was just amazing to be to be in prayer gathered with, with some other believers and to hear God's Word and to discover how He leads us to the things that He wants us to know and blesses us along the way. Absolutely astounding to me. We still, after all this time, have very little idea how much power is in this book. How graced we are To hold on to these Bibles that we have. Uh, How how much of an amazing blessing it is to be able to look into things that for centuries angels longed to understand. Things that God has unveiled. We we shared how on Sunday in in, uh, the book of Corinthians, how Paul said, even to this day, a veil remains over the Jewish people. As Moses wore that veil on his face, but for us, the veil is removed, it's lifted in Christ. For us to be able to not only hold in our hands the Holy Word of God, but to have the veil lifted and understand it. Amazing. Amazing. I hope that you're blessed tonight, as blessed as I've been in in looking at these first two chapters of Exodus this week. Some incredible stuff. The book of Exodus is a holy history. It's a holy history. It's a story of continuation. As we again saw on Sunday, it continues on, straight out of Genesis. It never stops, never skips a beat. And as amazing as our journey through Genesis has been, the book of Exodus is more amazing still. If you've found over the months in our studies, if you've been through the studies in Genesis, if you found them to be a blessing and encouraging and amazing and, and prophetic and all these things, Exodus is going to knock you right off of your feet. And just in looking ahead and trying to get a sense of the direction and, and what's in this book, I have been blown away. Now, as far as the authorship is concerned, let's just cover this very quickly. The author is Moses. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. These are the five books of Moses. Now, people have, have, have contradicted that. Scholars have come out with all kinds of hypotheses to try and say, no, maybe it's not Moses. Some things shift. There are some differences in the books. Therefore, maybe Moses had very little or nothing to do with the writing of several. Maybe he had some input. As a matter of fact, there's one I wanted to point out to you. A school of thought called the Documentary Hypothesis. Which teaches that the Pentateuch, these five books of Moses, were written, or was written, by several different authors. It's a myth that is very easy to dispel. And I've said this before, and I'll say it again. The best commentary on the Bible is what? The Bible. The Bible itself. And in Jesus' teaching, he quotes from all five of the books of Moses. All five of these first five books, he quotes from, and in doing so, while he quotes from them, he ascribes them to Moses. So Jesus recognizes Moses as the author of these first five books, and that's good enough for me. That's what I need to see, what I need to understand. John chapter 5, verse 45, speaking to the theologians of his day, Jesus said, Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Jesus made it, made it very clear, what well, we've already seen in Genesis, that the books of Moses are about Jesus. And Exodus, Exodus even more so than Genesis. And I tend to think, if I look at these things, that most scholars today, if, if, both in Jesus' day and today, scholars back then and scholars now, could save themselves a lot of trouble by just reading the Bible. We're going to have to come up with hypotheses and differences of opinion on who wrote what. Just look and see what the Bible tells us. Well, the Bible is clear. Moses wrote these books. Now, the Pentateuch comprises nearly one-seventh of the entire Bible. It's a huge chunk. By comparison, it compares to about two-thirds of the New Testament. And if we're simply looking at the comparative size of the Pentateuch, these five books of Moses... They have huge significance. Apparently, because so much time and focus is in these five books, God wants us to spend some time here. The Lord wants us to know and understand some things here. They are of vast significance and importance. Now, as you saw Sunday, while Genesis is the book of creation, Exodus is the book which anticipates redemption. Redemption. And you may recall how I mentioned on Sunday, if you could put a stethoscope to the heart of God, to God's chest and listen, I think what you would hear is redemption, 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 because that's the heartbeat of God. That is his care, his concern, his greatest desire for us. And Exodus anticipates redemption. Now, I was listening to a commentary. This last week by Chuck Missler, and he is a, an amazing mind, and sometimes hard to follow because he is such an intellectual. But he started off his discussion of Exodus, and he asked a question to the people in the audience that he was teaching. He said, "How many books on redemption in the Bible? Specifically, how many books in the Bible are on redemption?" Now, one guy, wise guy in the audience said, "66." And he said, well, okay, yeah, that's right. I mean, yeah, it, the whole book is redemption. But, but how many books specifically, that's the theme of the book? And he said, I would propose to you that Revelation, the book of Revelation, is the book of redemption. That's where Jesus returns, where Jesus claims his rightful ownership, claims, reclaims the title deed of earth, takes man places him where he needs to be. That's where redemption ultimately happens. Now, you and I have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. But we have not experienced the full ways of redemption like we will on that day when he calls us home. In that moment, we will understand redemption. Now we can only take a look at it. We experience it in that we realize the guilt over sin in the past has been washed clean along with the sin. But we don't know redemption like we will. In the same way Exodus and the people of Israel, their Exodus anticipates, looks toward, is a picture of redemption. They have an experience of redemption That is only a shadow of the redemption that they, the people of Israel themselves, will one day experience. That is those who turn to the Lord through Christ Jesus. So Revelation is the actual book of redemption, but Exodus is the book which most powerfully anticipates redemption. And any time you use the word anticipation in scripture, you're talking about prophecy. Anything that's said in Scripture, anticipating the future, or telling the future, is clearly prophecy. So though the book of Exodus is a holy history, it is also a potent prophecy. didn't realize this until I started really studying it. The book of Exodus is more full of prophecy than any other book in the entire Bible, Revelation included. Revelation fulfills prophecy, but Exodus is the biggest book of prophecy. Let me whet your appetite a bit. A couple of things we're going to see as we go through this book. Chapter 3, we will run into the burning bush. We're going to see that next week. Moses before the burning bush. Now the burning bush is a thorny desert bush, probably an acacia bush. But what's interesting about it is the Hebrew word for bush in Exodus chapter 3 is sinna. F-E-N-E-H, which means to prick or to jab, as in a thorn, because the acacia bush is a thorn bush. And it is likely, I can't prove it, but it is likely that the very crown of thorns which wrapped Jesus' head came from an acacia bush. There's a picture there that is very powerful, very prophetic, in the burning bush. This acacia bush, this burning thorn bush, the thorn is a picture of sin itself, Burning and yet not consumed. On fire with judgment, because fire pictures judgment in the Bible, but not consumed. It's a picture of how God rails against, burns against sin in our lives, but doesn't consume us, though that's what we deserve. The burning bush. We're going to see much more about that next week. Chapter 7 through 11, we'll read about the ten plagues of Moses, which picture powerfully the judgments in Revelation. Chapter 12, we will look at the Passover, which is the most powerful prophecy of the coming of our Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. Now, something you may want to jot down, and this is a side note, but I think it's fascinating. We're going to look at, in the book of Exodus and going on in the books of Moses, the seven major feasts of Israel. God declared seven feasts. Now, the Israelites, Israelis today even, have many more feasts. But there were seven prominent major feasts that God wanted them to observe. And he gives them in the book of Exodus. Here are the feasts. And again, if you're taking notes, jot these down real quickly. In the month of Nisan, which is the beginning of the religious year for Israel. The month of Nisan, that's March, April in our calendar. God ordained the Sabbath. Now, Sabbath, obviously, is a weekly feast. It's a weekly celebration. But Sabbath was given and began at that time. Passover happens in the month of Nisan. And thirdly, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Okay, so you've got Sabbath, Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread. Those are the first three feasts of Israel. The fourth Feast of Israel happens in the month of Sivan. That is our May-June time frame. The fourth Feast of Israel... (laughs) And we'll come back and and fill in the blanks here. In fact, if you want more on this after I finish tonight, I can give you more. I know I'm going to move quickly here. But the fourth feast is called Shavuot. S-H-A-V-U-O-T. It's the Feast of Weeks. We in the church know of it as Pentecost. Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks. That's the fourth feast of Israel. The last three feasts happen all together in the month of Tishri, which is September-October timeframe. This month. This month, Jews worldwide are celebrating Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of the New Year. They're celebrating Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and they will celebrate the Feast of Booths. And that covers all seven feasts. So here they are. Sabbath, Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, the first three. The fourth, Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost. And the last three, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, the Feast of Booths. Now, why are we going off on that, and why haven't we gotten to verse 1 of Exodus chapter 1 yet? I'll tell you why. Again, I'm letting your appetite to see what is coming. In the seven feasts of Israel, we have a picture of God's plan, of all history three feasts happening in March and April time frame in Nisan anticipate the coming of Messiah. The Sabbath, the Passover, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread all anticipate Jesus coming. The fourth feast, or the middle feast in between, anticipates the age of the church. It's Pentecost. So first you have three feasts that anticipate Jesus coming, then you have the fourth feast that anticipates the age of the church, and the last three feasts anticipate the second coming of Christ. Rosh Hashanah is also called the Feast of Trumpets. And what happens when Jesus raptures the church? The sound of a trumpet. First Thessalonians 4.17 At the last trumpet, the dead in Christ shall rise. And those who are alive in Christ will rise and, and join them in the, mirror, in the air. We'll be caught up together. Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. When atonement is finally recognized, realized, understood... By ourselves and by a remnant of Israel. And finally, the Feast of Booths, which Isaiah tells us, will be celebrated. Zechariah tells us, sorry, Zechariah 14. The Feast of Booths will be celebrated throughout the millennium. On an annual basis. We will go pitch our tents around Jerusalem and celebrate the Feast of Booths. It's amazing in these seven feasts that you get this big picture. By the way, there are some prophecy scholars who believe... That the second coming of Jesus will happen in the September, October time frame in the month of Tishri, because that's when those final feasts that anticipate Christ's second coming occur as well. I'm not putting a time frame on it, not saying that's when it will happen, but there are those who lean that direction. Well, that's chapter 12. We've talked about the Passover, anticipating, again, the sacrificial lambs. Chapters 25 through 30, this is the last one, and we'll move on into the study. The tabernacle. Now, as a younger Christian, studies like the tabernacle did not thrill me. Make it this long and this wide and use this colored yarn and put this here and this color needs to be there and you'd read through and go, oh, okay, let's get to the exciting stuff. Joshua. <laughs> the battles. The wars. Let's get to the blood and, you know, let's see David going out. After- I mean, that's what I wanted. Goliath. The tabernacle. Every detail of the tabernacle speaks of Jesus and it is amazing. And when we get there, it will blow your minds. This is all within the book of Exodus. Proverbs chapter 25 verse 2 tells us, It is the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honor of kings is to search out a matter. And so I invite you to be kings tonight. And to be kings as we go on into the book of Exodus, to search out a matter, to seek to understand and to know the things in this book. Psalm 119 verse 162, the longest uh, psalm in the Bible 119.162 tells us, I rejoice, rejoice at your word as one who finds great spoil. The book of Exodus is filled with treasures. And finally, Romans 15, verse 4. Paul said, whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. It was written for our instruction, for our hope, for our encouragement. Now you guys know this, but I am convinced that every detail of Scripture, even down to the last letters and even numbers in the Bible, are God-breathed, Holy Spirit-inspired. And great Bible study anticipates the discovery of great spoil, leading us to great hope. And that's what Exodus is about. And that's what I want you to take into this, this study, an anticipation of some amazing things. Verse 1, chapter 1 of the book of Exodus. Now these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. They came each one with his household, Reuben and Simeon and Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were seventy in number. But Joseph was already in Egypt. Joseph died and his brothers and all that generation. But but the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty. So that the land was filled with them. There was a population explosion among the Jews in this 400 year period of time. An absolute population explosion. Years, decades, centuries went by and Israel multiplied in huge ways. Which is exactly what God said would happen. I'm going to send them into a land where they will be foreigners. But in that land I will multiply them. I will increase them. I will make them a great nation. And that's exactly what God did. When the Exodus occurs... Though there were 70 who came in to Egypt, 600,000 men will go out. Now add to that their wives and their children, and you have a number that approaches 3 million. I believe I said 6 million on Sunday. I was wrong. (laughs) I wasn't thinking. I went back and heard that part of the tape and went, Oh, that's not right. 3 million, which is still a huge, a vast number. They were doubling their population every 25 years. Similar, by the way, to what's happening in the world today. Our population is exploding once again. what's interesting about that is Jesus said, It will be like in the days of Noah. When I come again, it will be like the days of Noah. And in the days of Noah, the population was exploding. It was huge. In our day, right now, the population is 6.4 billion in the world. And it is estimated to double every 15 years. 6.4 billion. 15 years from now, 12.8 billion people in the world. Which would be a larger population than the world has ever seen. Well, they grew from 70 to approximately 3 million in just 400 years. But why did God put them in Egypt in the first place? Quickly, and we've shared this before, but I want to remind you two reasons. Number one, to prepare His people for the land of promise. To get Israel ready to really embrace and take the land. He needed to pull them out, send them elsewhere, so that they could be prepared to love that land. You know how sometimes you just get used to things. We drive across the Deception Pass Bridge now almost every day, Cheryl and I do. And there are times I have crossed the bridge and come back and didn't even see it. I remember the first time I crossed the bridge, and I was—it took my breath away. Wow! Amazing, beautiful, wonderful beauty. And now, you know, I gotta get to the Well, There I go. I gotta get home. Well, there I go. And I don't even see it. Israel lived in the land of promise. Was given this vast, wonderful land by God. Needed to understand it. Needed to love the land. Needed to yearn for it, to ache for it. It's, by the way, one of the reasons I believe we walk the face of the earth today. After we're saved, God wants us to long for it, to love the land of promise, heaven. He wants us to yearn for that place And we have opportunity to stay here And to learn to yearn Well that's what was going on God was preparing the people For the land of promise How do you move 300 million people Who have settled for 400 years We've been in the little house we're renting right now For how many months now? Three? Four? Four months And I can't believe how settled we are It's unbelievable. Just walk into the kitchen and open a drawer. There's a picture of settled. All the stuff is shoved in. I mean, it's going to take us forever just to get out of that house and into the next one. It's amazing. We settle very easily. And the 300 million people here in Egypt are settled. 400 years worth. How do you get them out? Well, we'll see. But God is wanting to move them from where they are to where he wants them to be, just like us. But secondly, not only to prepare his people for the land of promise, God wants to prepare the land of promise for his people. He's got to get the land ready. And at the time that Israel came out of Canaan, it was an ugly place. But 400 years later, it would be heinous. It would be a a horrifying place to live. Idol worship rampant, murder of children, two idols happening all the time. And God said to Abram in Genesis 15 verse 13, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. They will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. And then in verse 16 of Genesis 13, God says, Then in the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. God tucked Israel away in Egypt, saved them, protected them from the sin of the Amorite, until the sin of the Amorite rises to the place of God's judgment. Now, I just mentioned that for this one reason. As we go forward in studying Israel, we will see some amazing conquests. And we will hear and see God say to the people of Israel, Go into the land and take out the Hittites. Every man, woman, and child, and all of their livestock. Wipe them off the face of the earth. And we read things like that and say, Wait a minute, wait a minute, that's different than the God of the New Testament. Oh, my merciful, gracious Jesus You know, who says, Come to me and and my my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well, I got this loving Jesus in the New Testament, this harsh God in the Old Testament. Listen, that harsh God in the Old Testament gave him 400 years to repent. 400 years of mercy before judgment fell. But I liken the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Hittites and the flashlights. I I liken them all to... To a rabid dog. that once you get to that point of sin sickness, it is so bad that you've got to put them out of their misery. And that's part of Israel's job as they come back into the promised land. We'll see that later. But we need to understand this to see that God's actions are actions of mercy and judgment. God alone can handle both, can do both hand in hand. I asked a question, I was thinking about this this week, watching the vice presidential debates. At what point do you stop the Amorites? At what point do you tell the Hitlers of the world, enough, we stand here? It took the attack on Pearl Harbor for our country to wake up and stand up. At what point do you tell Saddam Hussein, enough is enough? I'll leave that question for you to consider as you go to the ballots on November 2nd. There is a point, though, where God says, Enough! Enough is enough. I'm drawing the line here. And Amorites, when your sin reaches that place, when your sin is full, when it's complete, I will take you out. And He does. So after 400 years, God is ready. The land is ready. And the people are at least ready to start heading back to the land. (laughs) It's going to take them another 40 years to get there. Because they're not quite ready for the whole process. But at least they're ready to leave Egypt. Verse 8. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. If that surprises you, let me ask you. How many of you remember the vice president to Gerald Ford? How many people know Gerald Ford's vice president? See, Jim... Working his, his historical mind there. Was it Spiro Agnew? I don't even know. I have no idea. Who was Jimmy Carter's vice president? Was it Mondale? Okay, that's pretty good. Do you realize how recent that all is? And we have no idea who the major leaders were of our own country? Okay, 400 years had gone by. It is not surprising a new king arose who had no idea who this Joseph guy was. He didn't know Verse 9, he said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. More and mightier, literally he's saying, they're too many. And they have too much might. They have become too great. They are even greater than we in our own country. And so he says, verse 10, Come, let's deal wisely with them, or else they will multiply. And in the event of war, they will also join themselves to those who hate us, and fight against us, and depart from the land. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor. And they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Pithom and Rameses. But the more they afflicted them... Oh, wait, hold on. Hold on, verse 12. What's happening here is Seti the First... Is likely the pharaoh that has come into power. And Seti's got a problem. The Hittites from the north are a threat. Seti looks to the north of Egypt, the northeast of Egypt, to the land of Goshen, and sees this massive body of people called Israel, and thinks in his political mind, what happens if Israel joins with the Hittites? We're in trouble. And so Seti is gripped by fear of this massive people. So what does he do? He does what anybody does, by the way, who is threatened by somebody else. He puts them down. He gets them under his thumb. He dehumanizes them. Now, there are a couple of godly growth principles. As a matter of fact, as we walk through the rest of this chapter and the next, I'm going to give you several just principles that you can jot down kind of help us as we study along. The first two are growth principles, godly growth principles. And principle number one is that persecution is a typical response to godly growth. As the people of Israel grew, they received persecution for it. And that's typical. That is a standard deal. In fact, Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And I'm going to make a distinction here between those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus and those who just live in Christ Jesus. The difference is this. You can live in Christ and be saved. But if you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, the blessings and benefits thereof are huge, and they include persecution. Many a Christian person will walk through this world unscathed, will not have a hard time being a Christian, because they don't really look too different than the rest of the world. God's mighty grace will reach and save people. will be surprised. There are people sitting next to you who will be in heaven. I'm kidding. Of course, you're going to be in heaven. I would liken you guys here tonight to those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. Because the desire to live godly in Christ Jesus means I am going to work out my salvation. I am going to live out my faith. People are going to know that I'm a Christian. And not only that, I'm going to pursue godliness. I'm going to try to be more like Christ. And I'm telling you, the more you try to be like Christ, the more you will be like Christ that is, persecuted. Persecution is a typical response to godly growth. Jesus said in Matthew 5:12, 12, 12, if you're being persecuted for the sake of godliness, He says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now I'll take it a step further tonight. If there's no hardship, if there's no persecution, no affliction in your life because of Christ, you might ask yourself, Am I living Godly in Christ Jesus? Because Paul says, the number one way you can know is if you're persecuted for living in Christ. Not just because someone's giving you a hard time at work. Not just because my wife doesn't understand me or my husband thinks I'm an idiot. No, no. If someone is persecuting for you for the sake of Christ, you know You're living Godly in Christ Jesus. Well, verse 12, this is interesting. It says, the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread out so that they, the Egyptians, were in dread of the sons of Israel. Principle number two, persecution enriches the soil for greater growth. So it's another blessing of persecution. Not only if I'm persecuted, do I know that I'm living Godly, but God uses satanic, even, persecution to enrich the soil in my life. To grow greater seeds. To strengthen me. To make me a stronger follower of Jesus. It's wonderful. What Satan intends for harm, God uses for good. Now the historical reason for Israel's persecution here is set fear. But the spiritual reason is Satan's format. That is, he wants Israel gone. Put down out of the picture. And if you look across history, you see Satan trying it again and again and again. He will attempt to thwart not just Israel, but Messiah. Before Jesus came, names like Haman and Pharaoh himself, as we'll see with the slaughter of babies. Satan's attempt to stop the coming of Messiah. After Messiah came, Satan's attempt to mess up God's prophetic plan for Israel in names like Hitler and, yes, again, more recently, Hussein. You realize that Saddam Hussein was paying suicide bombers, Palestinian suicide bombers, $25,000 to their families after someone blew themselves up and took out Jews. This is what Saddam Hussein was doing. Now, regardless of what you think about the whole political landscape and decisions that were made by the current administration here in America, Saddam Hussein was acting as an agent of evil, especially regarding Israel. His heart was that Israel would be driven into the sea. I think the world is safer without him, personally. Well... These names, Haman, Hitler, Hussein, they all ring of satanic anti-Semitism. By the way, and by the way, listen to this. While well, Satan is persecuting the people, again, God is preparing them. As they are in bondage in Egypt, God is strengthening them. He is making them mighty. The more persecuted they are, verse 12, the more afflicted, the more they multiplied, the more they grew. By the way, this was the nursery into which God birthed the church as well. The first 282 years of the church were of intense persecution and amazing growth. Persecution and growth hand in hand. And as a brilliant early Christian writer named Tertullian wrote, he said, The blood of martyrs is seed. The blood of martyrs is seed. Not martyrs in the way that Islam speaks of martyrs today, blowing themselves up. That, that's not martyrdom. That's murder. But martyrdom in terms of standing for Jesus, loving like Jesus, and being killed for that. In the first 282 years of the church, upwards of 3 million Christians were killed for their faith. Huge persecution. By the way, the persecution of the church is not over. We sit pretty comfortable even here in a cool barn in America. But churches throughout the world, Christians throughout the world, are persecuted constantly. There are martyrs today. And if you're interested in finding out more on excellent resources for Voice of the Martyrs. You can go to voiceofthemartyrs.com. They have a magazine out They Their whole mission is to keep people aware of what's going on to Christians in the world. Well, Philippians 1.29, Paul writes, For you it has been granted, for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Verse 13. So the Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously. And they made their lives bitter with hard labor in mortar and bricks and in all kinds of labor in the field. All their labors which they rigorously imposed on them. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives. One of them was named Shiphrah and the other was named Puah. And he said are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool. If it is a son, then you shall put him to death. If it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, why have you done this thing and let the boys live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women. For they are vigorous and give birth before the midwives can get to them. They have babies fast, short labor. At least that was the excuse of the midwives. Verse 20, so God was good to the midwives. And the people multiplied and became very mighty. Because the midwives feared God, he established households for them. Verse 22, then Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born, and other versions add to the Hebrews, you are to cast into the Nile, and every daughter you are to keep alive. The midwives' names, Shifra and Pua, which sound funny in our language, actually are beautiful names. Shifra means to shine or glisten. Pua means glitter or brilliance. And when I read those two definitions and looked at those names and looked at their behavior and acting with godly fear... I was impressed that this one who shines and this one who has brilliance reminded me of this verse, Philippians 2.15. That we may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. This is interesting to me. That we shine in the world as we hold fast to the word of life. The word of life. Shephra and Pua gave us another interesting principle worth noting, which I'll give you momentarily. Last week, though, and I need to point this out, Jim talked to us about the elections coming up and the fact that we're called to obey those in authority over us. So regardless of who your candidate is and regardless of who is ultimately elected in this season, we are called on by Scripture, by God, to obey the governing authorities. But there is a catch. Romans 13 verse 1 Paul said Every person is to be in subjection To the governing authorities For there is no authority Except from God And those which exist Are established by God Therefore whoever resists authority Has opposed the ordinance of God And they who have opposed Will receive condemnation Upon themselves God places the rulers Where he wants them When he wants them At the right time But here's the caveat Here's the important exception Principle number 3 God's will always outweighs man's law Always, without exception. If there is a time where the will of God and the will of man collide, you go with the will of God and never with the law of man. A great example of this is Acts chapter 5. The apostles are out preaching the word, they're in the synagogue daily talking about Jesus. They've already been warned. Peter and John have already had a prison experience. Well, now all of the apostles in Acts 5 are thrown into prison. And we're told midway through the night that an angel of the Lord came and opened up the gate and said, Go back to the synagogue and teach some more. I love God's timing and his sense of humor. They're in prison for preaching. And the next morning, there they are in the synagogue again, preaching the word, talking about Jesus. And the Jewish rulers are going, "Can we just put them in prison last night for this? How did they get here? So they come up to them, and they they say, we have told you not to preach this name of Jesus. You're trying to bring his blood on our heads, which, by the way, they had claimed for themselves at Jesus' crucifixion anyway. You may recall, they said, his blood be on us and our children. Now they're trying to deny it. But Acts chapter 5, verse 29, Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus Whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand As a prince and savior To grant repentance to Israel And forgiveness of sins And we are witnesses, Peter says, of these things And so is the Holy Spirit, whom, and I have this highlighted, God has given to those who obey Him. God's will always outweighs man's law. Now you say, well, that's that's easy, that's basic, I understand that, Rick. Well, listen, if anyone, be it a parent, a teacher, a husband, a boss, even a governmental agent or authority, attempts to constrain you from following the Lord, or compels you to violate God's word, disobey. That's the one place where you say, enough is enough. That's where I draw the line. We talk about how up in Canada right now, because of the laws on the books, it is possible that a pastor could be thrown into prison for simply reading Romans chapter 1 because it, dispersed, it cast dispersion on homosexuals. It's considered hate speech. Even reading out of the Bible in a Sunday message Now, it hasn't happened, and if it did happen, I'm sure at least at this point in history there would be some kind of an uproar, but we are not far behind in the rules and the laws in this country. By the way, the midwives, fearing God over Pharaoh, clearly understood another principle, principle number four, that life is precious to the Lord, and it is His to give and take. Now, this is important. Acts chapter 17 verse 25 tells us He Himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Why? That they would seek God. If perhaps they might grope for Him and find Him though He is not far from each one of us. Psalm 71 verse 6 David writes, by you I have been sustained from my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. Psalm 139.13 13, You formed me in my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. And Jeremiah 1.5 indicates that God even knows us while we are still yet in the womb. Because he says to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. You see, our relationship with God might not start until we begin to recognize Him and choose Him, but His relationship with us begins at conception. It begins before conception. He has a plan. He knows what He's doing. And God is about life. And in verse 22, we see a picture of fear-based population control and it is widely practiced in our world today. Pharaoh commanded to all his people, saying, Every son who was born to the Hebrews, you're to cast into the Nile, and every daughter you're to keep alive. It was population control. Let's keep down the Hebrews. Let's enslave them, and let's take out their male children. And it was Satan's way of trying to stop Messiah from coming through the loins of Israel. But in so doing, they did something. Pharaoh did something that is still done today in China. China continues its practice of forced abortions and contraceptive restrictions of one child per family. This is out of a, a magazine, an online Christian doctor's journal that I ran across this week called Triple Helix. In the summer of 2002, they write, the Bush administration withheld $34 million in funding for the United Nations Population Fund because of its support of Chinese population control procedures. The Fund condoned Chinese birth control policies, including forced abortions and involuntary sterilization, going on today in China. Josephine Guy, Director of Governmental Affairs for the Policy Research Institute of the pro-life group Human Life International, Excuse me. Did extensive videotape interviews with women in China, which quote, paints a picture of ongoing, rampant and unrelenting abuse. Women reported having to hide their pregnancies and even their children to escape retribution from officials for not having abortions. While some describe punishments inflicted, others describe involuntary intrauterine device insertion with mandatory checks to be sure they remained in place. China today mandatory birth control a modern example of fear based population control that is going on in China but what about the good old US of A I've got a list of stats here and I I labored literally all afternoon thinking about do I want to share these I'm going to because I think we need to hear them but I pray that you will hear them with God's grace in your own lives and your hearts but listen to these 34,201,800 34,201,800 babies were aborted in America between 1973 and 1996. 34,201,800. Approximately 1. 1.4 million babies are aborted yearly in the United States, according to the Alan Guttmacher Institute. The vast majority of those abortions, 80% of abortions, occur be- between the 11th and the 14th weeks of pregnancy. If you've seen a child between that time, the child is formed. You see fingers, you see the heart beating, you see the face defined. And that's when the the vast majority of abortions occur. 60% of abortions are performed on women who already have one or more children. 47% of abortions are performed on women who have already had one or more abortions.
1: 47%,
0: nearly half. 43% of women who have had at least one, will have had, this is stunning, 43% of women will have had at least one abortion by the time they are 45 years old. 25.5% of women deciding to have an abortion want to postpone childbearing, and that's why they do it. 21.3% of women cannot afford a baby, so they have an abortion. 14.1% of women have a relationship issue, or their partner does not want a child. 12.2% of women are too young, their parents or others object to the pregnancy. 10.8% of women feel a child might disrupt their education or their career. 7.9% of women want no more children. 3.3% of women have an abortion due to fetal health risk. Listen to this. 2.8%, 2.8% of women have an abortion due to maternal health risk. If you're talking simply about health risk either to the baby or to the mother, it's less than six, well, less than seven percent of all abortions that occur have to do with health risk. Less than seven percent. That means 93% of all other abortions are just because the woman, for whatever reason, decides not to have a child. But this amazes me. Two last things. There is no available statistic for victims of rape or incest, though pro-choice advocates will say, Well, what about if the mother's raped? What about incest? There aren't even statistics for it. It is so rare that that even happens. And this surprised me. 43% of women getting abortions claim to be Protestant Christians. Almost half. I share this because it's a critical campaign issue this year, though you're not probably going to hear it discussed in the debate. Though it's not going to be splashed up on the TV screen as critical. But it is critical for those who, like God, choose life. Well, the newborn life was precious to the midwives because they knew well that it belonged to the Lord. And apparently, Moses' mother knew it as well. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. But... When she could hide him no longer, she got him a wicker basket and covered it over with tar and pitch. And then she put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. Now, we learn in Exodus 6 verse 20 who Moses' parents are, Amram and Jochebed. But I want you especially to notice Jochebed, Moses' mother, and what she does here. She was a woman of vision. Jacob was a woman of vision She looked at her child And she saw what most mothers see That her child was beautiful Most fathers have a little more trouble Most of us guys When we see the child born in the first time Look at it and have had the experience of Bill Cosby My dear I love you very much You've just given birth to a lizard <laughs> And he says Because it changed color three times And they were cleaning it off And it wasn't getting any cleaner But a mom, a mom can look at any baby and see its worth and its beauty and its value and see that it is a beautiful child. And Jacobet did. She had a vision for her child. Of all the children born in Egypt at this time, she knew this one's important. Not just because it was hers, by the way. I can't prove this. But the book of Hebrews does say that Jochebed and Amram acted in faith, which means they believed God was doing something. I can't prove this, but I wonder if God didn't speak to them in some way, didn't imply to them, didn't help them to understand at the birth of their son that he was special, that God had a plan for him, and that they needed to protect him. Well, Jochebed had a vision for her child. We don't hear much about Amram, just that he's Moses' dad. In fact, if you look at the first three verses of chapter 2 It is Jochebed, his mom, who gets the basket It's Jochebed who places him in the Nile It's Jochebed who is wanting to protect him It is later Jochebed who nurses and raises him Before giving him back over to Pharaoh's daughter When we don't hear much about Amram And I'll I'll throw this principle number 5 out Specifically to mom Let me encourage you to follow the Lord first And your spouse second Follow the Lord first Follow your spouse second I'm not saying Jochebed wasn't following her spouse, but she was the one acting. She was the one who had a vision for her son and followed that vision. Jochebed was also a woman of the word. She was a woman of the word. Wait a minute. um, Didn't you say that Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy? And if he was just a newborn baby at this time, how could his mom have the word to read? She was a woman of the word. And I'm speaking, I think, here of oral tradition That was passed down She knew another story Another story of how another person Was saved in water Was saved in water that was intended for judgment For you see, it's interesting to me, fascinating What is it that Jochebed does? She gets a wicker basket And covers it over with pitch See if that brings to mind another picture Of another basket of sorts Literally the word wicker basket there. Is literally box or ark. She builds an ark. This is the only time, by the way, in Scripture, other than Genesis chapter 6, 7, 8, the story of Noah, this is the only time where the word ark is used again. There's the Ark of the Covenant, but that word ark is a different word. This word for ark, it's the Hebrew word, well, I've got it written down here. Oh, where is it? Teba, T E H B A H, is used here and used with Noah, an ark. Jochebed builds an ark. She covers it over with pitch. What did Noah do? He built an ark and he covered it inside and out with pitch. Where did the ark go? Into waters of judgment. Where did Jochebed take this little ark with her son? To the Nile. Now consider this. Where was Pharaoh having the babies killed? In the Nile. Jochebed goes to the very place where Pharaoh's judgment was happening, places this child in an ark in the water. She's a woman of the word. I think this woman knew the story of Noah. Knew of God's protection of Noah. And Jacobette gives us two great principles for, I believe, successful parenting. Principle number six in our list. Ask God to give you a vision for your children. Jacobed had a vision. She saw her child as beautiful. She saw her child as worth more than anybody else saw her child as worth. And as parents, we have a responsibility to look at our kids and have a vision for them. And if you don't, ask God to give you one. And if your kids are grown, Cindy, ask God to give you a vision for your children. And then you impart that vision to them. Principle number seven, be a parent who knows and believes God's word. It is one of the most powerful and important things you can do for your kids that you yourself know the word. Somehow, Jochebed knew the Word, knew the story of Noah. The parallels are too coincidental to be coincidental. I think she knew exactly what she was doing. To the point in knowing the Word that when your child is in danger it is to the Lord and His Word that you appeal. If your child is hurting, if your child is threatened, if your child is doubting or in disbelief of the Lord, when you turn to the Word, and you be a person of the word. But I promise you, as I saw it very powerfully even this morning in my life, the word brings the answers we need. Verse 4. We're going to move real quickly here, so stay with me. Verse 4. His sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the Nile. And with her maidens walking alongside the Nile, she saw the basket in Ark among the reeds and sent her maid and she brought it to her. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the boy was crying. And she had pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. She knew from the beginning exactly what was going on, by the way. Movies may indicate otherwise, but she knew. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, so here comes Moses' sister, Miriam, who we'll meet again later. A very important person in this story. Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go ahead. So the child went and called the, to the child's mother. And I love this story. Verse 9, Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And this is how God works. I mean, she's in a a serious problem here. My son is going to be murdered along with all the other babies. So I'm going to act in faith, trusting that God's going to protect his child. And what does she get? She got her child back, and she got paid to have her child back. This is what God does. Does it pay to believe in the Word of God? You better believe it does. She takes care of those who do. Well, verse 10, reading on, the child grew. And she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. By the way, Pharaoh's daughter, her name, if you're interested, was most likely Thermutus. Thermutus. Pharaoh's only daughter, who herself was unable to have children. And so Moses was in line for great rule and authority in Egypt if he had wanted it. If he had desired that, he could have stayed. And, you know, a lot of times we think, well, man, he could have done such great good there. But how much more good did he do God's way? Versus his way. Well, we'll see Moses' way here in just a moment. Again, verse 10. The child grew. She brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses and said, Because I drew him out of the water. That's what Moses means. Out of the water or from the water. Now, it came about in those days when Moses had grown up that he went out to his brethren and looked on their hard labors. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that And when he saw there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. This great man of God starts out, a murderer. Verse 13, he went out the next day, and behold, two Hebrews were fighting with each other. And he said to the offender, why are you striking your companion? But he said, who made you prince or judge over us? Are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid and said, surely the matter has become known. And when Pharaoh heard of this matter, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian and he sat down by a well. Now watch this. Moses hits prime time in life. He's 40 now. I like to think of 40 as prime time. He wants to help out his people and his God. He chooses to be involved. He sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew and he says, I will not stand for this anymore. This is where Moses threw the line in the sand and said, I am stepping in. I'm taking the law The matter Into my own hand And the Bible says And listen to this He looked this way And he looked that And he went into action And it points something out To me That Moses looked this way And that But the one place He does not look is up He looks to the right He looks to the left He looks around To see if it's important For him to step in And fill this need But he never asks The Lord about it he doesn't seek the will of God in it. He saw need and acted instead of settling on his needs and waiting. Let me just share this with you after several years of ministry. I was asked uh, the other... No, it was Tom. That's right. I was trying to remember who did this. Someone sent me an email and it was Tom. And at the end of the email he said, Hey, don't burn out that before be careful that you don't burn out and I have learned something in ministry that I want to pass on to each of you as you consider ministry and do ministry in your lives burnout happens when we're looking this way and that way and not that way when we are not looking up when we're not seeking the will of the Father to do ministry or to act in our lives that's when burnout happens But when we're seeking God first, when we are patiently waiting for him, he renews us, he prepares us, he strengthens us, and he shows us what needs to be done. Moses didn't wait to see what God wanted to have done. He acted quickly, and so often that's what we do in ministry. And that's why, by the way, the average tenure of a youth pastor is ten months. The average tenure of a senior pastor in churches is 18 months. That's how long the average person will last in ministry. Why? Because they believe they have to be Jesus to everybody. Can I just remind you all that I am not your Messiah? And isn't that a great relief? (laughs) That I'm just the pastor. That's all I am that the time I spend in study of God's word important yes and when we share these things and read it it's wonderful yes but you need to understand that the power and the authority comes from the word and not from the pastor it comes from the spirit at work among us and not from the man at work among us and this man at work among us doesn't have the time to meet all the needs I can't do it you know there are times where I don't return every email there are times where I'm home and the phone rings and you leave a message and I don't pick it up I'm there. Not all the time. So don't feel like I'm just screening you. But there are times when I screen. Why? Because I'm a guy. I'm just pastor with a little P. A small P. Not capital. That's who I am. God brings together the body of Christ to meet all the needs. And one man will not, cannot do I'll do my best. But even Sunday morning, I got called down by Donna. Oh, he doesn't return phone calls, she says. (laughs) That's the last time I returned one of your calls. (laughs) No, she was playing with me. But you know what? There's no way any one person can do that. And the point is this, gang. You will, as this church grows, begin to see more and more needs. And the question is, are you just going to step in and meet them? Or are you going to step back and ask God... Is this mine To be involved in If it is I guarantee it He'll let you know I promise you If you are to be involved If you are to meet Particular needs God's going to tell you He'll put it on your heart He's not going to let you Get away from it But don't think That you've got to Take on that role Like Moses Looking at right like Someone's got to do it It's me Not necessarily Something's better Than nothing But sometimes We need to step back And let the Lord Determine who does The Something So principle number eight. So what do we do? Principle number eight. Sound ministry comes from the knees. Not from a knee jerk. Don't be a knee jerk. (laughs) Don't have knee jerk reactions. We need a children's ministry here. We've been talking about that. We've got to do something for our kids. Let's do it now. And I wonder what did the first century church do as they met in each other's homes? Did they have the big children's program with the worship team and the whole deal and the clowns? (laughs) Or was the family just there, hanging out together? You know, one of the most fun times in the history of this church, the short history of this church, was last fall. As we all huddled together in the living room, because that's all the room we needed. And kids were spilling juice and drawing and standing up and needing to go potty in the middle of them, trying to teach and this is all going on. And it was wonderful. Wonderful wonderful. I don't know why I'm talking about that. Anyway, serve gang according to obedience, not necessarily according to need. Seek the will will of the Lord. He will direct your steps if you look up and seek His will. Proverbs 16.3 Commit your works to the Lord and your plans will be established. Let Him lead out in the ministry that you seek to do. The problem is we're often too busy trying to save people to hear him. So God takes Moses, who is trying to step in, who is trying to lead, who thinks he's doing the right thing, and he pulls him out. You are not going to lead my people by the power of Egypt. You're going to lead my people as a shepherd. Verse 16. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. And then the shepherds came and drove them away, these evil shepherds. But Moses stood up and helped them and watered the flock. And when they came to Rule, their father, he said, Rule is, by the way, also I believe Jethro, another name for him, why have you come back so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds. And what is more, he even drew water for us and watered the flock. And I love this. Rule says to his daughters, Where is he? Why did you leave the man behind? go get a man I've been stuck with seven daughters long enough at least one of you can find a good man here go get him invite him to have something to eat and Moses Moses verse 21 was willing to dwell with the man and he gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses Moses was willing to dwell with the man I've got that underlined in my Bible Moses was willing to dwell with the man If you let that sink in momentarily, where did he come from? The palace of Egypt. The power of the world. He had it. He could have had it. Had he played the game right, had he been the right kind of politician, he could have led in Egypt and saved his people right there. And the Israelites never would have had to go back to the promised land. They could have stayed right there under Moses' rule. But he was willing to dwell with the man. It's a very humble statement. And it speaks of content. Principle number nine, folks, true contentment is found right where you are. And we spend much energy in our lives trying to find that place where we will ultimately be content. And God's saying, it's right here. You can find the greatest peace and content right here. It's not over there. If you think it's over there, guess what? When you get there, it's somewhere else. It is very elusive. True content is found right where you are. If I'm not content with, with where I am today, I will not be content with where I am next year, next year either. Paul tells Timothy this is an important course of study. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. Paul writes, Godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. Contentment. He says, we brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. Now, if you look at verse 22, I think it's intricately linked to verse 21. Verse 22 tells us that then she gave birth to a son, and she named him Gershom. Gershom, for he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land, and Gershom is a great name. Grandparents tell your, your you know, kids, if you've got a son or daughter who's going to have children, tell tell um, Ryan and Jennifer, Gershom. Gershom. That's a great name. It actually and literally means a stranger here. Stranger here. And this is key to contentment. And key, folks, if you're having trouble finding content in where you are right now, in this moment today... In the home in which you live, in the family that you've been assigned, in the job, in the school, in the workplace, wherever you are right now, if you're having trouble being content, here is the key. Be a Gershom. Be a stranger. Because you are a stranger here. Principle number 10, and it's the last one I'll give you tonight, true contentment is found in the heart of the sojourner. The heart of one who recognizes that we do not belong to this world. There's an old hymn. This world is not my home. I am just a passing through. I love that. This is not where I live. This is not my residence. I am here a short while. I am a sojourner, a foreigner in the land. And I am on my way. I am Gershom. That is the call. I am Gershom. There's a Switchfoot song. I love the band Switchfoot. I mentioned them before. On their recent album, The Beautiful Letdown, and the song, The Beautiful Letdown, the chorus says, I don't belong here. And they just sing it over and over. I don't belong here. I don't belong. Over and over. I don't belong. And I listen to that and think, yes. You know how much peace comes from realizing we do not belong in this place? But we belong there. We belong with the Father in heaven. And once I get this, once I truly understand this, I can enjoy my life. I can be content. Whatever comes, bad or good, evil or greatness, it doesn't matter. Because, hey, this is the short walk. I'm on my way elsewhere. And Hebrews 11.16, referring to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, it says, As it is, they desired a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called, called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Do you remember the last day of high school? I remember it vividly. The very last day of high school, graduation day. I remember the cap and the gown flowing behind me. I felt very cool. Looked like an idiot, but felt very cool. Our school colors were red and yellow. So I had this bright red graduation gown, not the cool black, but it was red. And I'm walking around this thing on oh, my high school campus. I had that kind of bittersweet looking back and going, yeah, this is all behind me now, but the future was so bright. I had to wear shades I mean it was amazing all the promise that was out there all the things that I had to look forward to marriage and children and, and who knew what God had in store what my job would be and, and would I be playing for the NBA or not I wasn't sure at the time but there was so much out there before me and then life begins to happen doesn't it and we wake up in the morning and we completely forget that feeling and go another day King, I submit to you that if you live as a Gershom, every day is the last day of high school. Every day is graduation day. We wake up, we look out, and there is nothing in front of us but hope and promise and the wonder of eternity with our Father. Every day you're a stranger. Every day is the last day when you're a Gershom. Verse 23, we'll finish. Now it came about in the course of those many days that the King of Israel died Or, sorry, the king of Egypt died. And the sons of Israel sighed because of their bondage. And they cried out. And their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. Listen to this. So God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Verse 25 God saw the sons of Israel, and literally, God took notice. God took notice I love how this chapter ends the people are sighing and crying and calling out to God and their bondage is great and at their worst when they think everything is hopeless they are Gershom they are standing on graduation day but they don't even see it they don't recognize it but God has heard them and what does God do when they cry out to him he sits up and takes notice which is what God always does when his children cry out to him I alluded this morning or earlier to some prayer time this morning. There's a a sweet sister from our fellowship who needed prayer and with Les and Donna and Cheryl and I and Barb and Carrie we gathered around and we just spent time praying for her. And it was amazing. And it, it was wonderful and it was overwhelming and this verse popped up and I've got to share it with you. Psalm 69, 30, 33. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his who are prisoners. The Lord hears the needy. When we cry out to the Father, he sits up and takes notice. He does respond. Whoa, whoa, you know. Listen, this person that we were praying for, I actually prayed for with some other people five years ago. But it was on a Sunday morning and it was very quick. We needed to pray for this person because there were some issues, some struggles. And so we gathered together very quickly and we prayed and we left. And I walked out of there feeling like either God didn't hear us or we didn't cry out very loudly. It was a waste of time. It was a quickie prayer. So many pastoral prayers that I've experienced in the past have been. You pray quickly for someone and then you quickly move on to the next person because like Moses, you've got to murder people to give a hand. You're out there doing the ministry. You don't have time to stop and wait and smell the coffee. Literally, guys, I did not have time today to spend time in prayer. I'm ashamed to admit to you, though thrilled that it worked out, then Cheryl came to me Sunday and said, "Hey, I, I set this up. How about Wednesday morning? Can you do this?" And my first thought was, "Wednesday morning? <laughs> I've got Bible study Wednesday night, hun. I don't have time to spend time in prayer Wednesday morning for somebody. Can we make it another time?" But it was already set up by then. And all week long, I've been looking at Cheryl, going, "Thanks a lot. for stressing me out. <laughs> I got a Bible study right here." And I need it this morning, I believe, more than the person we prayed for. The Lord hears the needy and does not despise his prisoners. If you are feeling persecuted or enslaved or afflicted or held down in bondage in this life, if it's hard for you right now, the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his prisoners. And I implore you to learn what I learned this morning. And we need to set it aside and pray we need to give time to the Lord so that when we cry out to Him, He will hear us. And I would say this to you tonight. As I've said many times before, I'm quoting Jesus, Luke 21, 28. When these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads. Don't look to the right this way. Don't look to the left that way. Straighten up your heads because your redemption is drawing near And so chapter 2 closes with the children of Israel crying out, God taking notice, and things are about to get cooking in terms of a burning bush. We'll see that next week. Let's pray for a moment. Holy Father, precious Lord, and sweet Holy Spirit, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for the way that your word washes over us. And thank you, Lord, that your word convicts as well as heals. I thank you for times, Father, like these, where in our lives we have a thousand other things to do, but it all stops when we come before you. It all goes on hold, it all hits pause when we sit and are washed by your word and your spirit. Some of us tonight need this kind of rest. Some here tonight, Father, are feeling burned out because they're working so hard. When you said through the Hebrew writer, Sabbath rest still waits for the people of God so, Father, I ask, as one crying out to you, that you will give us peace and discernment, and that you, Father, will rename every single one of us Gershom tonight, reminding us yet again that we are strangers here, sojourners, people who do not belong in this world, but people who are prepared for the next. God bless my friends, my brothers and my sisters here as we continue to pursue you and pursue godliness. And we lift up this prayer in our time together in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.